0: If you will take your copy of the Holy Scripture and turn to last week's benediction. Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse number 33. Five years ago, we preached this text. Hard to believe. Five years. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Father, thank you for the truths that we have heard in song and in readings. Again, on this Lord's day, to gather in this. Holy Tom, to be reminded anew of the grace that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. And we stand now in that grace. Thank you, Father, for the truths that have been proclaimed to us this morning. And even now, as we turn our minds to this text, Holy Spirit, would you be pleased to do a gracious work in your people here this morning? Familiar text. Let it not be stale to our hearts. Let, our, let not our minds drift as we hear a passage that maybe is not only familiar to us, but we've memorized and recited and considered Tom and Tom again. Oh God, be gracious this morning to us as your people and remind us That all things are moving for this climactic purpose in this universe. And that is to the praise and to the glory of you, our God. May that truth deeply move us today. As we give to you now, we are mindful. We give nothing to you because you are a debtor that you might be repaid. Lord, you are full of grace and mercy. You have no need, including us, but we give to you this morning out of a response to this grace and this mercy you have bestowed. Bless your people now as we give. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. I've shared this with you before, I know, surely. It's kind of a nostalgic week for me, if you will. 1997, setting in a very small apartment in Virginia Beach, right near Regent University, if you're familiar with that area. No furniture yet. We were working toward that end. My wife and I just moved with our two month old son for seminary. I was working at a dairy farm. Yep, I was making ice cream at a Mennonite dairy farm. That was my job. And my wife and I sat down on that floor. I'll never forget these moments of our lives. Never. The second most cherished book of my library. You could probably sell on eBay today for about 99 cents. It's entitled The Westminster Confession of Faith, Study of the Confession. By G.I. Williamson. I had no idea where I got that book. Had no idea why we were sitting there with that particular book on those days, in those days. But I remember my wife and I. I can recall this as easily as I can recall what happened this morning or last night. Sitting on that floor with that book open, and G.I. Williamson graciously pointing us to the truths. Of God's absolute, full, complete, unraveled supremacy and sovereignty over all things. Now, I remember getting angry. I remember my wife and I crying. <laughs> She's not here, so I can tell this. I remember her getting up walking out of the room one time. She didn't want to hear any more of that. I didn't want to hear any more of that. I was struggling, I was wrestling what Pastor Tim had kind of planted in our hearts a few months before now was coming to fruition and the fruit was starting to abound and we didn't like it. Because maybe for the first time in my life, I was coming face to face with text after text after text after text that put this astounding reality before us and that was this. God is sovereign And his final and full purpose in everything was to bring glory to himself. (laughs) We felt so small. And what I didn't know at the time is that was the way I should have been feeling. Small and little. Every year in January or so, we will pick a text with really that aim. You know, we preach consecutive exposition around here. So we get in a book and we stay there typically. We don't really veer much of all that. I don't trust myself to veer topically or doctrinally very often. I feel like I need to settle into a text so that I'm guided by the inspired writers. Hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. But every year we pick a text at the beginning of the year because we're starting to think through our business meetings coming up at the end of January or the beginning of February, whatever the schedule is this year, we're, we're starting to think through planning and scheduling and strategy and thinking about mission. So every year at the beginning of the year, we pick a text to remind us as a people here at Randolph Street of why we exist. Surely we hit that throughout the year, but just in case, we take just a Sunday at the beginning of the year, setting forth our agenda for the year, looking out. That's what we kind of do as Americans, right? We kind of look out, we plan, we, 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 we devise, we think through things. Well, before we do all of that, what we want to do here today especially is to set forth this ideal, this end goal, this purpose of why everything exists, including this local church and including you as an individual. Why has God saved you The ultimate end of all things is what I learned on that dirty carpet in Virginia Beach. The ultimate end of all things is the glory of God. And we need to be reminded of that. Because we are glory grabbers in our flesh. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater joy, there is no greater peace, there is no pleasure that surpasses a life that is lived knowing this truth. I exist for the glory of God. So this text, Romans chapter 11, is kind of a concluding text from a lengthy section of Scripture. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But it is is kind of the text, if you will. In many ways, this passage could be the concluding sentence to the entire Bible. In many ways, this text is like the exclamation point that we would put at the end of the Bible, especially verse number 36. At the end of all things, here it is. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And then this glorious statement, to him be the glory forever. Here's your outline. If you want to take notes. If you put out your card, you can take notes in your new journal. Okay? As a reminder. Four points this morning. We're going to look at a helpful reminder from the Apostle Paul. This is looking into his personal life kind of thought for a moment we're looking at one word one word that's a helpful reminder then we're just going to kind of follow the text okay three questions that's the second point. point third point three affirmations and lastly one grand conclusion so one three three one let's look first at this helpful reminder let your eyes linger back to verse number 33 We've talked to you about this before, especially in certain books that we've preached through. You have to read tone into text. Okay, so so when we read this, I'm going to go back and reread this in a moment. There's two ways we can read Paul here. So if you look back at verse number 33, after this astounding statements in chapter 9, 10, and 11. Listen, when I preached Romans chapter 9 here at Randolph Street, I will never forget that. Those were some of the most burdensome sermons I've ever preached. I remember the weight that I felt, tangibly felt as we were walking through Romans 9 and this clear, in-your-face type statements about God and his absolute sovereignty over all things, including our salvation. I remember preaching through those texts. I believe it, but I remember those texts. They were so overwhelming to me as we walked through them. At the end of 10, 11 chapters, Paul gets to this statement in verse number 33. There's two ways you can read this. Let me go back and catch 32. I'm not going to get into it. Go back and listen to those sermons. For God has consigned all to disobedience. All here, if you follow the narrative in Romans 9, 10, 11, Jew and Gentile alike, God stands over, he consigns all to disobedience. So that, there's a purpose here, so that he have, may have mercy on all, Jew and Gentile alike. It's a breathtaking statement that summarizes much of his argument in chapter 10 and chapter 11. And in chapter 10 and 11 is really an expression of this sovereignty we find in chapter 9. At the end of that, Paul then comes to verse number 33. Now before I reread it, I want to remind you in Romans chapter 16, verse number 22, Paul, Paul tells us he dictates this letter. Right? Romans chapter 16, verse number 22. Jump over there if you would. I just want you to see this in case, just just for your help. Tertius tells us. Correction. Ah, Tertius, who wrote this letter to you, greet you in the Lord. This is Paul's letter, but Tertius recorded it. He wrote it. In other words, it seems obvious when you connect all of this together from chapter 1 to chapter 16 that Paul dictated this letter to Tertius. So now for a moment, let's get personal with Paul. Let's step into this moment with Paul. Paul is with Tertius and he's, he's reciting, if you will, all of these words that we have before us and called the book of Romans. He's, he, he's speaking them aloud, telling Tertius what to record so they can send this letter along to the church at Rome. This church Paul loved and was looking for support so that he could take the gospel to Spain. There's two ways you can hear Paul saying this. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths, the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. That's not how Paul said this. Okay? That's how we often read this. Right? It's like we read to get through something, and we're reading quickly, and we don't hear the inflection. We don't, we don't hear the tone. This is the grand culmination. Paul's coming to this moment. It is the moment he is going to declare to us these incredible truths rooted in the gospel that he has now proclaimed for 11 chapters. Hear this. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths. Oh, the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, Tertius. How unsearchable they are. How inscrutable are his ways, Tertius. Tertius probably took out all the Tertius comments, right? Paul was overwhelmed here. He dictates this letter to this friend And he comes to this moment after extolling the grace and the mercy and the freedom of God in saving sinners. Paul has reflected upon his sin, upon the depth of our sin, our wickedness. In this letter, Paul has considered that God is against us. His wrath is against all unrighteousness and wickedness. In this particular letter, Paul has declared to us the means of God reconciling us to himself. In this letter, Paul has spoken of this continuing work of transformation only by God's grace that is happening in us, forming us more and more into the image of Christ, and that is a gift of the Spirit. In this letter, Paul reminds us that God is the potter and that we are the clay in this letter, he develops this incredible plan of God as he looks up on this disobedient people and the Jewish people, and he displays His grace to the Gentiles, and how the grace displayed to the Gentiles is ultimately going to turn to provoke the Jewish people to repentance. All of that. And you can hear Paul. His heart is almost exploding. Oh, Tertius, oh, Tertius, the depth of the wisdom and the riches of God. For Paul, this theology that he's been expanding upon for 11 chapters did not lead to some intellectual exercise alone. For Paul, this truth led to worship. It moved him deeply. And you can hear that in the Apostle Paul right here with that one little word. He could have skipped that word. He could have passed on. But I think it was a natural expression of Paul's heart as he considered the grace that God had given to him in Christ. Oh, Tertius, the depth of God's riches, the depth of his knowledge, the depth of his wisdom. Oh, Tertius, it's unsearchable. It is so deep. We find here an apostle, stimulated to praise and to worship. Look at verse number 33 in this context of verse number 33. He, he notes three aspects of this divine work. The riches of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God. We worked hard on that the first time I preached on this five years ago. And I know you remember that sermon from five years ago, right? Right? This is his summary for Paul. He is blown away by the wisdom and knowledge of God and how he has demonstrated the riches of his kindness and grace toward Jews and Gentiles alike, those who are guilty before this holy God. These three divine qualities, if you will, that rise up, that speak of God and his saving plan toward sinners. These three divine qualities rise up in Paul's heart and cause him almost to be in a state of shock, if you will. Oh, the depth and the riches of his knowledge and wisdom. This is intentional language. Notice what he says in verse 33 Oh, the depth. As he looks up on these three divine qualities, the riches of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, he now looks up on them and he says, Oh, the depth. The idea here is he, he is looking in and he cannot find the bottom of them. He's peering into these divine qualities, the riches the knowledge, the wisdom of God. He looks in as to everything he knows and he can't find the, the bottom of this. They are incomprehensible. They're untraceable. They're unfathomable. No finite human mind would ever conceive such a plan to save sinners. I shared this, I think, when I preached this sermon, if I remember right, this sounds like a good place to share it. When I was traveling with the good Dr. Vickers in Indonesia and teaching with him. We did some snorkeling on the Spice Islands and I'd never done that. And it was fairly shallow water, but the, 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 the instructors, the guys kept saying, hey, don't go out too deep, don't go out too deep, which I just heard, go out deep. You know? And, you know, you're all, you're all courageous and strong and, you know, you swim out there. And then the ledge dropped off and I looked down and I got scared out of my mind. I was in three feet of water, and I was tough. I crossed over. I could see nothing, just the depths. I was overwhelmed. I turned around quickly and went back to shore, acting like I'd had enough for the day. But that's the idea here. Paul peers into this, the the riches of God's grace. He peers into the wisdom of God. He peers into the knowledge of God, and he says, oh, the depth of them. And notice the parallel word. They are unsearchable. He looks in and he can't see the bottom. the, the, The finite mind cannot grasp the totality of God in regard to these divine qualities. Calvin would write, Whenever then we enter on a discourse respecting the eternal counsels of God, let a bridle always be set on our thoughts and on our tongue. So that after having spoken soberly and within the limits of God's word, such careful wording, our reasoning may at last end in admiration. And that's exactly what happens to Paul here. As he speaks of God and the glory of God, the end of his reasoning as he looks and peers upon the divine counsel of God is ends in admiration. And you can hear that in Paul's language. Oh, the depths. The riches of his grace. Oh, the wisdom and knowledge of God. They're unsearchable. We have, we promote at Randolph Street a very high view of God, a hope. I don't think we'll ever attain to promoting the type of view of God that the scriptures promote of God. We strive. We like theology. We like studying the Bible. We like reading the Bible. But brothers and sisters, anytime our minds begin to dive into the depths of God's wisdom and counsel and knowledge and His grace and His mercy as we entertain these things in our hearts and our minds, may may God be gracious to us to always let those thoughts end in admiration and praise and worship. This isn't seminary classroom this is truth that lodges into our minds into our hearts and brings forth praise and worship of our god now let's look at the three questions that are in this particular text and we'll do this fairly quickly these next few points we're going to race fairly fast through this there's three rhetorical questions if you look down at your passage verse number 34 you will find two of them verse 35 you'll find the third Verse 34 is rooted in Isaiah chapter 40. Verse number 35 flows out of Job chapter 35. These are recitations of Old Testament text. So the questions begin with this one, verse number 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, I made a comment that these are rhetorical questions, but they're they're really more than rhetorical questions. they don't demand a response but there is an expected response and i think this the expected response of the reader here when you hear this kind of question who has known the mind of the lord the expected response is silence it's not just no answer it's silence we have entered into the classroom of the lord who has known the mind of the lord When Paul looks up on all of the teaching he has put forth through this particular local church, he comes to this Isaiah 40 reflection. As he thinks about the mystery of God in saving sinners. As he thinks about the mystery of God in saving Jewish people and Gentile people. As he looks up on the whole of all that God has done, he asks this rhetorical question, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, Isaiah 55, God would say this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, they're unattainable, except he reveal himself to us. John spoke of that this morning, the call to worship. The knowledge of God is unattainable. The mind of God is beyond us, except he reveal himself to us. Deuteronomy chapter 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and the children of God forever, that we may do all the words of his law. We only know what has been revealed to us. No one in this room nor in eternity can ever pretend to know the inexhaustible mind of God. No one. And these questions are putting us in our place, right? I mean, this is what Romans 9 does. And this little ending here in Romans chapter 11, the, the, the writer here, Paul, wants us to understand at this, conclusion, at this conclusion point that he's going to draw out, he wants us to understand who we are in light of who God is. So the first question, who's known the mind of the Lord? The answer? Just Stay silent. Calvin would write, Paul extends his hand here in the text. He extends his hand to restrain the audacity of men, lest they should clamor against God's judgments. It's a rebuke. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Look at the second question, verse number 34. Who has been his counselor? Again, the expected answer is not to let your mind start racing. The expected answer is go silent. There is no reply. Who has been God's counselor? You you read Romans 9 through 11 and you step back and you say, I don't don't really like the plan of God. I mean, that was part of the wrestling that was happening in my mind and my heart in Virginia Beach. I was wrestling. I don't like this. God stands over that and he looks at us and he says, Who has been my counselor? Think of that. No one has ever taught God a thing he has never learned. He's never been surprised by a new idea or a fresh thought. He has never been troubled by lack of understanding or insight. His knowledge of all things is exhaustive past, present, and future who has ever counseled God. Tozer would write this, God cannot learn. He never at any time or in any manner received into his mind knowledge that he did not already possess and had not possessed from all eternity. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally, equally well. He never discovers everything. He is never surprised, nor is God ever amazed. He is is unlike us. He's outside of us. He's unparalleled in his wisdom and in his mind and his insight. That's why Paul responds, oh, the depths of his wisdom. Oh, the depths of his knowledge. They're unsearchable. This is God that we are speaking of. These first two questions are rooted in Isaiah 40. Let me take a moment and go back and read The verses that flow right out of this question that's posed in Isaiah 40. Listen, if you would, Isaiah 40, he continues Whom did God consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. You hear this? He's just setting us in our places. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. God weighs them out. He accounts them. And notice his conclusion. They are less than nothing. To whom will you then liken God, or what likeness compare him? We sang of this this morning. Here it is. An idol? Is that what you're going to compare to God? No, here it is. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and and he casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Here it is. It is he who sets above the circle of the earth and and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. It is he who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness scarcely they are planted scarcely sown scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like a stubble and here it goes to whom will you liken me compare me that i should be like him says the holy one lift up your eyes and see who created these He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This this whole idea, these questions that are lodged to us in Romans chapter 11, verse number 34, their backdrop is that text. When God stands over all creation, over all the nations, He speaks of them as if they are less than nothing. His power rises over all. He sets in the heavens. Nothing compares to this God. That's the backdrop. That then Paul comes to verse number 34 and he asks these two questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Silence. Who has ever been a counselor to God? Silence. Silence. Look at the third question. The first two really deal with the plan of God. This deals, I think, more specifically with salvation. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The background of this is Job chapter 41, verse number 11. The answer that is expected is the same. And the point of this particular question is to push across to our finite minds that God has never, nor will he ever, be in a position of a debtor. Never. Sean said this in his call to worship. God owes no one anything. God is never the debtor. John Murray writes this God is debtor to none his favor is never compensation merit places no constraints on mercy listen maybe this isn't an answer of silence maybe we want to be quick to answer this question who has given a gift to God that God might be in his debt or that he might have to repay the answer should quickly rise in our hearts no one There is nothing in us that elicits God's mercy and favor. There is nothing in us that causes God to look up on us, display grace. Nothing. God is free. That's Romans nine. Oh, and it's so stunning in Romans nine. He's free. He's free to give grace as he wills. Completely free, no obligations. He is outside of us. He owes no one anything, Jew or Gentile. It does not matter. God is never in the position as a debtor to anyone. He's free. He gives as he wills. We are recipients only well after those three questions I'll feel a little small where I should f- proper spot I feel tiny I feel undeserving right which are three proper questions to get us to that proper place to lead us to these three affirmations beginning in verse number 36 Here's the three affirmations. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. There they are. This is the conclusion of Romans 1 through 11. And as I said earlier, could be the conclusion of the whole Bible. Notice the three affirmations. First, all things are from God. Everything. It's all inclusive. It's exhaustive. This is the divine creator. He is the maker and the originator behind all things. Nothing exists without God willing it to exist. Nothing. Everything is from Him. And that applies directly to us likewise our life, our breath, and our salvation. It is all from God. He is the source. Second affirmation, all things are through him. Not only is God the source of all things, God is the sustainer and the means of all things. So nothing exists without God willing it to exist. But nothing continues to exist without God willing it to continue to exist. All things exist by him and all things exist through him. He is the means by which all things exist occur and exist nothing is accomplished outside of his providential and sovereign hand this is Ephesians 1 he works all things together after the counsel of his own will all things oh, I had a list of verses I was going to read some of them are rather shocking we're going to pass Everything that exists has its source in God. Everything that continues to exist is because of God's sovereign will causing it to continue existing. That is God. We see a little bit of this reflection in Colossians chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In him all things continue to exist. The universe is not random nor chaotic. It is not out of control It is overruled by a sustainer who is moving it toward a glorious end and purpose. And brothers and sisters, that's kind of truth. You need to root in your heart and rest there. Let your heart be encouraged by that great and glorious truth that not only all things are from God, but all things come through God. Continue to exist. Listen, I I jump on this occasionally, but I think it's appropriate here. It is easy for us to watch news channels and think the world is upside down and going to hell in a handbasket, as if everything has fallen out of control. And yes, you can watch news channels and see the the reaping and the results of sin, and especially what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the disobedience of Adam. You see all of that. But brothers and sisters, don't mistake here. Don't make this mistake here. God is in control, and God is sovereign over everything. Nothing escapes that. Nothing. Not only on this earth, but in the heavens and throughout the entirety of the universe. There's not one random molecule or atom out there that exists outside of God's sovereign care and counsel. Not one. So we can live in this world with that kind of theology that grounds us and roots us and helps us to live then in a manner for the glory of God because everything is from him and it's through him. And he's not finished there. There's one more affirmation. All things are to him. In other words, God is the end and the goal of all things. Everything is moving toward this one glorious purpose. Every star, every galaxy, every bird, everything is moving toward this glorious purpose to God, for the glory of God. Nothing exists outside of this purpose. Which leads us then to the grand conclusion. Verse 36, the last phrase. This is Paul's only response. To him be glory forever. To get to that phrase, Paul had to walk through everything else first. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's ever been his counselor? Who's given to God that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, And to him are all things. Now, you hear all that? There's only one response. Here it is. To him be the glory forever. The grand purpose of all things. This is it. This is the grand conclusion, I think, to everything. To God be the glory. And that includes even your salvation. Peter says it so well in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why are you this? Why have you been purchased? Well, he gives us the answer that, there's the purpose statement, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of this darkness and into this marvelous light. Why did God save you? The glory of God. And that is truth to live your life on. Your purpose, our purpose, is this and nothing short of it. We don't exist for world missions, we don't exist for evangelization, we don't exist for discipleship, we don't exist for community. It's a part of what we do. But those are not the the divine purpose of what we're going after. We exist for the glory of God. Our goal is to take the gospel to the nations. Why? Because we want to see the nations be glad in God. We want to take the gospel to our neighbors. Why? Because we want to see our neighbors rejoice in the glory of God. We want to disciple believers. Why? Because we want them to come to embrace this reality that everything is for the glory of God. We want to spend time together in community. Why? Because we want to promote this truth in each other's lives that there's nothing more glorious than living for the glory of God. Nothing. Calvin writes, Paul hence infers with this statement in verse 36 that our being should be employed for his glory. That's his, I think he does it more than just infer. I think he's saying to all of us, this is why you exist, the glory of God. And just side note, anything short of that, if you're a believer in Christ, anything short of that, you are short circuiting the very purpose of God in your life, and I'm confident you will be miserable in this world. Oh, but to live there, to live for the purpose of God. Calvin continues, he hence infers that our being should be employed for his glory. For how unreasonable would it be for creatures whom God has formed and who God sustains to live for any other purpose than making his glory known. How unreasonable. Unreasonable. So where are we on this, right? As a church, we want to focus everything we have on bringing glory to God by making Him known to the nations and to our communities. Everything. Where where are you individually, right? You hear this kind of stuff and you find your life aligning with this inference, as Calvin says, Do you find you look at this and say, okay, yeah, I'm striving, I'm here, I'm struggling, and, and I'm failing at times, but man, my heart is here, my heart is here. I want to be like Paul here. Or do you find yourself out here calling yourself a believer and just living for your own pleasure and your own glory? That's miserable. This is joy. This is joy. One writer in church history said Romans chapter 11 verse number 36 is the equivalent to Psalm 115 verse number 1. I'll read this psalm and then I'll ask our elders to come to prepare the tables. Psalm 115 verse 1. You know it. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name give glory. Oh, my God grant that to be the cry of our hearts as we move forward together as a church. Not to us. Not to us, but to your name. Amen? And I forgot. How could I forget? Let me reread this, and then you join me. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. In many ways, this is just a reminder that we are the clay and you are the potter. And as the potter, you have the right to determine, to purpose, to execute the plan for your glory. We join you in that mission today, Father. We join you in that mission knowing that our joy is full when we live our lives to reflect the glory of you, our God, our creator and our redeemer, our lives and our hearts are full, just like Paul when he exclaimed, oh, the depths, the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. Father, as we move into 2020 together as a church, may this truth press on us In every aspect of our ministry, from our Lord's Day gathering to our engagement to the nations, to our work right here in Appalachia, right here on the west side of Charleston, may these truths rise up and influence every decision, every aim, every intent, every action, every discussion, To you be glory forever. Thank you for this time, Father. What a time to glorify you. We come to these tables and we are reminded that we stand right before the Holy God because of Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness, for your kindness, for your sacrifice up on the cross. Thank you for your willingness to lay your life down. Thank you for the power to take your life up again. Help us now as a people to embrace and rejoice in the hope you have given us in Christ, O oh God. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.